and uh, remember kids camps open if you want to take advantage of that for your young people well we have been in uh, in a series called uh, worldview these last few weeks and uh, remember what we've been doing is we've been looking at other belief systems out there in the world and trying to understand uh, those belief systems and especially the differences between those belief systems and and uh, Christianity and uh, so first week we were together we looked at um, Jehovah's Witness and uh, looked at that one for a while and then uh, last Sunday we talked about uh, Judaism uh, today we have the uh, the difficult task of, of looking at Islam uh, difficult uh, because um, quite frankly there's a game at noon today and uh, we could take a lot of time uh, talking about uh, Islam so I'm going to going to try to really give you a lot of information today as fast as I can to get a sense of it. And the, the reason I feel so urgent about you getting information about it is because it's so prevalent right now in our culture, right? Now, some of you aren't as old as I am, but, um, you know, in, in my growing up, I remember the experience when a guy named Cassius Clay uh, decided to change his name to Muhammad Ali and become a Muslim. Anybody else in the room remember that? Yeah, you remember that? And it was like, what? Yeah? It's like, what? Right? And then a guy named uh, Lou Cinder changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And the same thing happened. And you said, what? Right? And for you music fans, a guy named Cat Stevens changed his name to? Yeah, you won't know. But it's not Cat Stevens anymore. Right? In the music world. I mean, do you remember those days when this changed? was happening, but it was so unusual. It was like, well, what, what's going on? They're, they're becoming Islamic. What, what's going on? The contrast today is that, is there a day that goes by that you don't in some way through the news media or something that you've run into in the paper, whatever it is, is there a day that goes by where you don't somehow hear or get influenced by the reality of what's going on in our culture related to the Islamic community? You see what a drastic contrast we've been through? What a, a, a drastic shift? To give you some sense of what that is on a, on a worldwide uh, basis, uh, right now about 21% of the world population uh, is Muslim. And uh, the Muslim religion is the fastest growing religion uh, in the world. On a, on a world basis, what that translates to is that two out of en every 10 people in the world uh, are Islamic. Now, now, to give you the contrast uh, with us, 33% of the world population uh, is Christian. Okay? Now, here's the big surprise. Christianity throughout the world is plateaued or declining. Islam is the fastest growing, and they predict that if Islam continues to grow in the world at the same pace and if Christianity stays where it is or declines as it is, within one to two decades there will be more Muslims in the world than Christians. Many who look at the world scene and the growth of, of uh, uh, the Islamic movement look at Europe and say Europe will become the next Islamic uh, states. Isn't that fascinating? This is something that we've got to get a handle on and, and understand uh, as, a, as a Christian community and how do we uh, know what's going on in this Islamic movement 
and, and how do we uh, respond to it. So I want to just give you lots of information this morning. So hang in there with me. Ready to go? If we look look at the roots and follow in your handout, well, yeah, that'll really help you. So if you pull that handout out of your insert, I think that'll really help you uh, keep pace this morning and make some notes as we go and, uh, you know, use that this week to think about about what we uh, what we talked about this morning. Uh, in the Islamic community, they will go and, and uh, take their roots back to the Old Testament, back to uh, Genesis 16. And I gave you the reference. I've got it on slides, but for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole experience. I'll just summarize it for you. It is, is the experience in Genesis 16 where God has already come to Abram and said, Abram, now listen, I know you're old in age, but you're going to bear a, a son. Sarai is going to bear a son. So just be patient, hang in there with me, and I promise you that you're going to bear a son, and, and that son will lead to a great nation and a land. And so he's made this covenant with Abram. Well, Abram's getting older. Sarai's getting older, and nothing's happening. Okay, So Abram and Sarah do that thing that's so tempting for all of us, right? We, even though we got God's promise, they decide they're going to take things into their own hand. And so Sarai comes up with a plan and says, Look, Abram, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll just give you my maid... Hagar, and you sleep with Hagar, and if she conceives, then the child will be mine through my maid. That was what they did back then, right? Uh, and so that's the plan, and of course, they do the plan, they take things into their own hands, and of course, Hagar becomes pregnant. The only problem is, when Hagar becomes pregnant, now we have two women in the house, one of them pregnant, one of them not pregnant, and they start being in conflict with each other. And, of course, guys, where does that put Abram? Not in a good place, right? He's right in the middle, not in a good place. Two ladies in the house, they're fighting with each other, right? So, so they got to come up with a solution. Uh, the net result is Hagar bears a son, and the son's name is Ishmael. And if you uh, follow along in, uh, in Genesis then, and you jump to Genesis uh, 21... So you need to move ahead, guys, with the slides um, to just that one line, verse 13. There's a slide with just verse 13 on it. Uh, Ishmael is born, and they determine that, that Hagar and Ishmael need to go because it's just not working in the house. And so Ishmael and Hagar are cast out of uh, Abram's uh, home, but a promise is made over Ishmael, and it says, I will make the son of the servant into a nation also because he is your offspring. So God is going to bring a blessing into Ishmael's life simply because of Abraham, because he is he's the fruit of Abraham, right? This is the roots that the Islamic tradition looks to and says that they are the offspring of uh, Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael is provided for. God does preserve Ishmael. Uh, he and Hagar end up moving down to the border of Egypt. And if you go to Genesis uh, 25, uh, next slide, Genesis 25 says, This is the account of the family line of Abram's son Ishmael, whose Sarah's servant, Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher. And they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Did you notice the last verse there, the last sentence there? They lived how? in hostility. Do you see how scripture is true? Is there any more place in the world that seems to be over the centuries more hostile than the Middle East? 
And it goes back to this reality. I mean, it goes back to this origin, these roots, right? You've got the roots in the Arab community that say, we are the offspring of Ishmael. And, of course, you've got the Jewish community, and they say, no, hey, we are the true line because we are the offspring of, of Isaac, right, where God's promise followed. And so we see right here that they lived in conflict from the beginning, and that conflict continues uh, to this very day. The Islamic community understands its roots going back to the experience of Abraham, Hagar, uh, and Ishmael. Now, as time passed, of course, they settled there. As time passed, what happened in their culture was that the, the descendants of Ishmael became uh, polytheistic. That is, they started worshiping a variety of gods, okay? They started just worshiping a variety of gods. you got the sun god, you got the fertility god, you got the moon god. In particular, was the moon god. A significant thing happened in the Islamic movement in the midst of this polytheistic viewpoint. Uh, back in 570 A.D., Muhammad was born in the city of Mecca. And that was significant. And I, I gave you the reference so you can see how the time frame there, Jesus was born right around 4 B.C., right? So you can see how many years after Jesus, uh, Muhammad comes onto the scene, right? But Muhammad is born. Muhammad uh, grows, and he is born into this polytheistic uh, uh, culture. Muhammad, uh, when he was born, uh, went through a couple of quick tragedies. His uh, father died and his mother died before he was six years old. Uh, he then lived with his grandfather. His grandfather died two years after that. Uh, and so ultimately, he went to live with an uncle. Uh, and his uncle lived in Mecca. And his uncle was the caretaker of an important stone. And I've got it pictured there for you. It's surrounded by silver on the left bottom left side of the screen there. Um, that's the stone. It's called the Kaaba stone. Uh, it's at Mecca. It's part of, on the right there, that bigger, bigger kind of building-looking stone that's there. And uh, that becomes the center of attention, by the way, at, at Ramadan, right? But that stone is there. And... Uh, the uncle of Muhammad was probably the keeper of the stone, and it was probably in relationship to a moon god, that this stone was a, a relic of worship related to a moon god. It's probably a meteorite is what it is, right? And so it, it was related to the moon god. When Muhammad emerged onto the scene in this polytheistic culture, he emerged onto the scene, and he said, no, there is one god, and his name is Allah. There is one God, and his name is Allah. And he understood the stone and taught that the stone was not related to a moon god, but it was related rather to Allah, and that the stone had been actually placed there by uh, Abraham. And so to this, this day, that stone is an important relic uh, for the Islamic movement uh, there at Mecca. And remember, they go to Mecca on their pil pilgrimage uh, in, in their lifetime. Well... Muhammad emerges on the scene. He latches onto this important relic. He makes the proclamation that there's not a multiple gods, but there is only one God, uh, and his name uh, is Allah. Uh, he has this by virtue of revelation. What happened in Muhammad's life is that when he was 25, he got married. Uh, he married a woman who was about 40 years old. She was a wealthy widow, uh, and so he was able to devote, devote a lot of time because of her wealth to contemplation and, and study. 
uh, didn't devote all his time to that. They had six children, uh, four daughters, two sons, uh, but the two sons died uh, during infancy. Uh, he also, by the way, uh, obviously outlived his first wife, and uh, after she died, uh, he remarried several times to the point that he had uh, 13 wives, um, which was a kind of a special exemption because he was the prophet. He gave himself a special exemption there because you're only supposed to have four. Okay? Now, most of us are saying, four! One's enough! Right? Four! Oh. But, yeah, he had 13 entertaining. He had 13, okay, uh, wives, gave himself a little special uh, special exemption there. Um, anyway, Muhammad emerges on the scene. He, he does his contemplation, and what happens is that he proclaims that in the midst of one of his times of contemplation and reflection in one of the caves outside Mecca, that he was visited by the angel Gabriel. And if you go to the next slide, uh, he was visited by the angel Gabriel. And in that visit, in successive visits, over a 23-year period, Muhammad says that the angel Gabriel uh, revealed to him uh, teachings. Those teachings are what is captured in the Quran. This you know about, right? The Quran, the holy book of Islam. So uh, Muhammad is in the cave. He has the, the revelation. Uh, and the, the revelations are ultimately uh, collected and written down and then they, they become the book of uh, the Quran. And I'll give you a note there, the four, it's about four-fifths of the length of the New Testament. It has about 114 uh, chapters. It was uh, given to uh, Muhammad over a 23-year period, uh, and it was dictated, uh, that Muhammad just dictated uh, his uh, revelations. And the Islamic community believes that Muhammad was blessed in this way, because even though he was a man, and they, they understand that, that Muhammad was just a guy, that even though he was a man, he was a man who had no major sins. He had no major sin. He had a little sin, but no biggies, right? A little stuff, no, no biggies. And because he had no biggies, he was blessed with this opportunity to receive this revelation from the angel, uh, angel uh, Gabriel. Based on these revelations, Muhammad began teaching where he was there in Mecca. Unfortunately for Muhammad, the people in Mecca didn't respond real well to things that he was teaching. He grew a cadre of people, but before long, the community in Mecca became uncomfortable with his presence. And so he fled about 250 miles north of Mecca uh, to a town called Yathrib. Uh, and when he went to Yathrib, he moved into Yathrib, and uh, he began to get a following, and he renamed the uh, town of Yathrib to the city called Medina. Heard of it? Yeah. You've now discovered the two major cities for the Islamic movement. One is Mecca. That's the first and most important city. The second most important city is uh, Medina. And he called it Medina because Medina means city of the prophet. Uh, so He's in Medina, and he, uh, he continues to translate uh, these revelations that, that he's had. Interestingly enough, anybody have a guess what the third major city is for the Islamic movement? Any guesses? Yeah, it happens to be Jerusalem. It happens to be Jerusalem. You know this if you think about it, right? Uh, because, of course, what's, what's right there in the middle of Jerusalem? The dome, the big gold dome, right? Dome, Dome of the Rock. Why is this important? For the Islamic movement, Jerusalem's the third major city 
because uh, Muslims believe that when Muhammad was in the process of dying, that he was translated to Jerusalem to the very place where uh, Isaac was being sacrificed, right? The rock where Isaac was being sacrificed by, by Abraham. And that he was translated there, and from that place, he was taken up to paradise. Okay? And so that place where Isaac was being sacrificed becomes a significant place for the Islamic movement, which, of course, is right where the Dome of the Rock uh, is, is built. Hmm? Oh, what else is at the Dome of the Rock? What else is built on that same site? The temple, the Judaism, right? The Jewish temple is built on the same site. Do you see why there's conflict over there? What's going on, right? Okay. Um, well, anyway, um, Muhammad emerges and he begins teaching. He gets a following. Uh, he does, by the way, get back to Mecca. He gets enough of a following that he builds an army and he goes back to Mecca and he wipes out the inhabitants of Mecca. And, and takes over uh, Mecca. Uh, the big thing is Muhammad proclaimed himself to be the prophet. He proclaimed himself to be the prophet. Not only the prophet, uh, he proclaimed himself to be the last and final authoritative prophet. If you go into his writings, one of them, and we'll talk about it later, is called the Hadith. Uh, here's what he says in the Hadith. I have been on the months-long journey. I have been given permission to intercede. I have been sent to all mankind, and the prophets have been sealed with me. What's he saying? I'm it. I'm the last one. I'm the last authoritative word. I'm the final word uh, on, on, the, on everything. Now, the Muslim community understands that uh, Muhammad was this prophet of authority and revelation. And interestingly enough, they go back into the Old Testament, into Deuteronomy, to validate Muhammad. Isn't that kind of interesting? They go back into the Old Testament, into Deuteronomy 18. And Deuteronomy 18 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to him. This is Moses saying that, forecasting that a prophet will come. The Muslim community looks at Deuteronomy 18 and says, Ah, there it is. This is uh, Muhammad, that he is the prophet Moses is uh, talking about. And Muhammad carries that out in the Quran. If you go to the next slide, a quote from the Quran. It says, Those who follow the messenger, referring to himself, the unlettered prophet, kind of an interesting subnote. What is an unlettered prophet? Yeah, no letters, meaning he was illiterate. Well, Muhammad was illiterate, couldn't read or write. Okay? Unlettered prophet, whom they find written... Uh, who they find written in what they have of the Torah and the Gospels. This is interesting. Uh, Islamic movement recognizes the Old Testament Torah. They recognize the words of the prophets, and they recognize the Gospels of Jesus, but obviously not in the same way we do, right? They recognize them as, as valid writings, but they are totally inferior to the Quran and the, writings, the other writings of, of Muhammad. He says, Torah gospel, who enjoins upon them what is right and forbids them what is wrong and makes lawful for them the good things and prohibits them the evil and reviles them of their burden and the shackles which were upon them. So they have believed in him, honored him, supported him, and followed the light which was set down with him. It is those who will be the successful ones. Right? So it's clear Muhammad proclaims himself a prophet. And Muhammad also says his word is the last and ultimate 
authoritative word. And that word is captured in uh, the Quran and some of his other writings. Now, just to quick set things straight, what's kind of interesting, we quoted Deuteronomy 18, right? And said, okay, they, they see Muhammad there. Interestingly enough, of course, we Christians look at Deuteronomy 18, and we understand that that refers to Jesus. And we get that not only because we see it in there, but we get that also from Jesus, right? If you go to uh, John 5, John 5 says, Jesus talking here, but do not think I have accused you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he did what? Wrote about me. And we say, oh, when did Moses write about Jesus? There he did, right there in Deuteronomy 18. See the connection? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we understand that verse and say, no, 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 you're not, you're, not, you're not right on there. That, no, that's referring to Jesus. That's pretty clear. Right? The Quran is not the only writings of uh, Muhammad. If you go to the next slide, uh, there's also something called the Hadith. The Hadith is a collection of sayings and judgments uh, that Muhammad uh, was recorded during Muhammad's lifetime, usually by his wives, by his closest friends or other relatives. Remember, he was illiterate, so he didn't read or write. So others listened to him and they wrote these things down and then they collected them all together. And so the Hadith has authority over Muslim life just like the Quran does. Uh, and then, of course, there's something called the Sharia. If you listen to the news, you hear about Sharia law. Okay? Uh, there it is, Sharia. Sharia is a strict guide from Muhammad about life and conduct, about how you're supposed to live and how you're, uh, how you're supposed to uh, uh, behave. Ultimately, Muhammad died in 632. Uh, when he died, Islam uh, had uh, some fractioning take place because the question was, of course, the prophet is dead, so now who, who takes over, right? Who's going to take over? Uh, and so there was some division about who should take over, and uh, that leads to what we hear today uh, in those terms called Shiite and Sunni. Heard those terms? Yeah, this is the roots. This is where it comes from because prophet is dead. Who's going to take over? One group said, well, his close friend should take over because he knew him best. The other group said, no, his cousin should take over. That's who should take over. And they debated with one another about who should take over. And the bigger group said, look, the friend is going to take over. So he took over. And later on, to just kind of ensure things, the bigger group assassinated the other guy. How cool is that for taking over, right? They assassinated the other guy. The way that plays out for us today is that the Sunnis are the group who said, no, the friend should take over, and they're the ones that, um, that murdered the, the cousin, and the Shiites are the one who backed the cousin. So you can see why there's even conflict uh, today. I mean, why can't they form a government over there, right? We Americans look at that and what's... Well, there you go, right? There's just this ongoing uh, uh, conflict. Okay. Gave you some quick stuff. You still with me? I hope so. All right. Let's turn to understanding that. What is Islam about? I mean, what? okay, where's the differences? What is, how does Islamic life look out, Islamic faith uh, pan out? Next slide, please. Islam itself captures the essence. The word captures the essence of what Islamic life is. Islam means submission. Fundamentally, Islamic life is submission absolute total submission to the teachings and the words of the prophet Muhammad. And there is no room 
It is absolute adherence to the teachings and the words of the prophet Muhammad. The Quran says, So do not fear the people, but fear me. And do not exchange my verses for a small price. And whoever does not judge uh, by what Allah has revealed, then it is those who are the disbelievers. So if you don't follow what the Quran teaches, what Muhammad revealed, then you are not a believer. It's that simple. That Islam is simple submission to the words captured in the Quran and the other writings uh, of Muhammad and complete, utter following of that, of that teaching. Okay? The way that lays out in their practical life, then, is that they are to follow the five pillars of Islam. And those five pillars are these. One, they're to recite uh, the Shahada. And so they're supposed to recite this phrase uh, several times during the day. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now remember, I told you, what kind of culture did Muhammad emerge into? It was a polytheistic culture with a variety of gods, right? So what's one of the fundamental principles and pillars of Islam? <laughs> Forget the other gods. There is only one God, and uh, his name is Allah, and uh, Muhammad is his prophet. That's it. And so they are to recite that several times uh, during the day. Then they're to pray five times during the day, at daybreak, noon, mid-afternoon, after sunset, and early nighttime. And you've all seen that. You've seen videos, right, pictures of that. Crossing their arms, a very prescribed way of doing that, kneeling and praying, uh, facing, uh, facing uh, Mecca. They are to give uh, alms to the poor and to the mosque at a minimum of 2.5%. There's no, uh, no give on that. I mean, you just do it. You're, you're expected to give uh, 2.5%. Uh, you can give more than that. They're willing to do that, but you must give a minimum of 2.5%. Uh, they fast during Ramadan, uh, and the fasting is only during daylight hours. It involves the giving up of food, a drink, and uh, sexual activity, right? So nothing during the day, but it's okay to have fun at night, okay? Nothing during the day. Cut off during the day. So those afternoon experiences, forget that afternoon delight. It's gone. Nighttime. You only think of nighttime, okay? Just want to clarify, okay? Uh, and then ultimately, you must make a pilgrimage to Mecca in your lifetime. You have to do that. Every Islam, uh, every Muslim person is expected to fulfill this. Now, if you're poor, they make provisions. So if you're really poor, you can send somebody else. So some poor people can get together, pool their money, and send somebody else on their behalf. But it's expected to be faithful, you will make, and obedient, you will make a pilgrimage uh, to, to uh, Mecca. In their belief system, they hold fundamentally six doctrines that are the key to, to Islamic belief. And if we get the next slide, there you go, thanks. Six doctrines, and they're, they're simplified in this way. There is only one true God, and his name is Allah. That doesn't surprise you, right? Just saying, that's it. Allah is it, one true God. Uh, they believe in angels, but God, Allah, uses angels and he uses demons to influence life. And that's his only influence. That's his only influence. Allah is a distant and removed God, okay? Uh, that Quran is the absolute authority over life. Uh, they recognize the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospels, but the Quran is the absolute authority uh, over life. And that Muhammad is the last great prophet, and that in the end, Allah will judge everyone, and each one will be sent to heaven or sent to hell, and it's based on purely Allah's judgment. That's it. Whatever ju Allah judges, that's the way it is. 
And Allah has determined what pleases him, and no one can change uh, what he decrees. Allah is an absolute in-charge God, and whatever he says goes, and that's it. There's no debate. Okay? All right, so there's some summary stuff. Let's get to the last portion. Talk about, okay, anybody feeling uncomfortable in the room, by the way, about where we've been so far? No, okay. Well, let's look at the differences and get uncomfortable, all right? Uh, the differences. One, a little thing, but I found it interesting as I was doing my research for this, uh, is that uh, one of the little things is the Quran just makes some fundamental errors. You know, this is not a big theological debate here on this one, but it's kind of interesting. The Quran itself includes some just some fundamental little kind of mistakes compared to to the biblical account. So, so for instance, uh, in in the Quran. It says that Abraham was uh, going to sacrifice Ishmael, not Isaac, right? And uh, it says that in the Quran, it says that Abraham had only two sons. Well, the Bible says he had eight sons. And uh, this one you get, there's a, that the person who purchased Joseph, remember Joseph when he was down in Egypt, right? And he was purchased by a wealthy person. The Quran says he was purchased by a guy, guy named Aziz. Well, our Bible witness is that he was purchased by Pontifar, remember that? He was purchased by uh, by Pontifar, okay? Um, and some other little things uh, like that. Most significantly for us, the Quran says that Jesus was born under a palm tree. There goes Christmas, right? No manger scene, no light nativity, it's gone, right? So I mean, there's just some little things in the Quran that just like don't 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 match up. But what are the big things? Here's the big things between Christianity and and Islam. Uh, one is that Islam denies the Trinity as the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, what do they repeat several times today? There is only one God and his name is Allah. Therefore, they deny this understanding that we know to be true about the nature of God, that God's nature is three wrapped up in one, and he expresses himself to us as Father, as Son, uh, as Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting is they understand Allah and they understand God, it, they also denied the personal nature of God. Allah is a very distant and removed God. He is simply almighty. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the judge, and, and he is removed from daily experience by and large, which stands in total, total contrast, of course, to the nature that we understand about God, right? Well, I mean, we understand that our God is absolutely, utterly involved in every single experience and moment of our life. That, that our God cares so compassionately about what we're going through that, that he would not remain distant, but he came to be with us. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us, right? The Quran understands God to be someone who is powerful and distant, while we understand a God who is incredibly compassionate, loving, and involved in the experiences uh, of our life. They also deny Jesus, then, as, as the Son of God. They see Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher, as a good guy, but he was not the Son of God. There was no divinity involved. Uh, and actually, you know, Muhammad is the prophet, and Jesus is way down on the food chain, okay? Just, just not that important. Uh, the big one, though, is the next slide, uh, and this is the key for us, that... Um, the Islamic movement denies, literally denies, Jesus' death on the cross. Right? And I quoted the Quran here so you can see it in the Quran. 
It says, and for their saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumptions. And they did not kill him for certain. So the Quran absolutely denies the reality of Jesus dying on the cross. They said, well, somebody died on the cross, but it wasn't Jesus. It was an imposter, you know, that, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Whoa, this is huge. This is incredibly huge. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, then you and I don't have the incredible gift of salvation. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, then you and I are still living in the burden of our brokenness and our sin. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, then you and I are left only with carrying our shame and nowhere to nail it, nowhere to put it. You see how fundamental this is? The reality within Islam is that they deny this, this uh, death of Jesus on the cross. And in so doing, next slide, they uh, deny salvation. And they say salvation is achieved by only Islamic submission. And forgiveness is not a free gift that is given by a compassionate, involved, gracious God, but it is simply a forgiveness that gets earned. If you're Islam and you mess up, you don't follow the Quran, you mess up, you know what you have to do? Just do better. It's your only option. If you mess up, there's no forgiveness. you got to just do better, right? And you earn back that forgiveness by just doing better. The Islamic movement is a movement about works righteousness, about just living as right as you can live. And if you don't live that way, then you got to just try to live better, right? This is in stark contrast, stark contrast to what we understand about the good news of Jesus Christ coming to be involved in our lives, in our lives, to love us enough to die for us and to take the burden and the guilt and nail it to a cross and give us a new life. John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with our Father Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How important is it that Jesus died on the cross? You see, I can't imagine facing tomorrow if I didn't have the knowledge and the gift of knowing that Jesus Christ died for me. Because I could never do enough. I could never do enough. And, and what this leads to is the last thing. It leads to the, the, the last slide, if you will. It leads to the, uh, the understanding of eternity as well. You see, they understand that Allah will come and Allah, the distant, distant God, will simply judge based on how you lived your life. And when you face that last day, how comfortable are you going to be if you're in the Islamic movement? How comfortable are you going to be to know you made 51%? That you live life 51% at least? And if the guy that lived at 49%, sorry, you're out of the loop, Right? You see, this is the oppression that they live under. They don't have the freedom of the gospel that says Jesus Christ came to die for us and give us the free gift of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life, even when we mess up. We also have a different understanding of eternity, by the way. And I mention this only because you've heard it all over the news, right? 
And, uh, of course, the understanding in the Quran of, of paradise is much more a self-indulgent kind of, of paradise. You know, and we go quote Quran stuff, but it's, you know, reclining on couches and fruit and food all over the place and wine just there for the taking. And, yes, it does say in there about those virgins and concubines that are just waiting for you guys. Okay? That's the image of paradise, right? Total contrast to us, obviously. I mean, paradise is living eternity in the presence and worshiping God without end, huh? Yeah. You see, this is it. This is Islam. Fundamentally, it is so different than who we are. And that's why it's so hard for us to witness to Islamic people. Because they live in a world that's only about submission and obedience. And we live in a world that is all about a personal God who loves us enough to give up his own son, Jesus Christ. We live in a world about grace and compassion. Our challenge is to be able to share that with our Muslim folks who live around us now. To, to share with them the good news that they don't have to live under that oppression. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the good news. Boy, it is so amazing that our gospel is about love, grace, that it is a gospel that proclaims a freedom to us because Jesus Christ really is the one who died for us and that he is truly your son who gave up everything to set our sins aside. Lord, keep us confident in this truth and help us to not walk away, but share that good news, to just live that good news, share it with other people, because there's so many who live under the oppression of this guilt. Father, give us the opportunity to share your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.